0: Amen. Well, please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you out with that. Just raise your hand as they make their way up and down uh, the aisle. When I get ready to uh, jot down the notes that I keep in my Bible each week, I write something in the top uh, left corner uh, before I write anything else. Uh, These three statements, exalt the Savior, humble the sinner, and promote holy living. I write them as a reminder of myself for myself that this is the aim, this is the goal, these are the outcomes that I'm looking for. This is what a good sermon ought to do, these three things. I also write them as a, as a prayer request: Lord, only you can do these things. This is what I want to see happen. These ideas aren't really original uh, with me. One of my heroes in preaching history is Charles Simeon, and he described his preaching ministry as having these three goals. You can see they're almost identical, to humble the penitent, to exalt the Savior, and to promote holiness. And as I was thinking about the message for this week, as I was uh, studying John chapter 17 verses a 1 to 5, I realized that my prayer request actually lines up with Jesus' prayer request. My aim and my goal is to exalt the Son. And Jesus in John 17, when he prays, he begins with, with this prayer request that he himself would be glorified. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, and having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have in the entire Bible. And we're going to be looking at it over the next, the next few weeks, and Jesus begins, though, his primary prayer request, if we're going to pray the way Jesus prayed, his primary prayer request is that he would get glory. Five verses we're studying today, glory in some way, shape, or form appears in this passage five different times. But in case we don't accuse Jesus of being somehow conceited or self-focused in asking for his own glorification. It's really important that we understand precisely what does Jesus mean when he asks the Father to glorify him. Let me uh, share with you the way Sam Storms defines glory. He says, the glory of God is the exhibition of his inherent excellence. It's the external manifestation of His internal majesty. To glorify God is to declare, draw attention to, or publicly announce and advertise His glory. Peter O'Brien similarly says, To give glory to God is not to add something to Him. Rather, it is an active acknowledgement or extolling of who He is... Or what he has already done. When we talk about bringing glory to God. It's not like God is short on glory. And he's like, oh thank you. Thank you for bringing me some glory. No, we're not adding anything to him. And when Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him. We must remember that all Jesus is asking. Is that in Jesus' actions that are coming. That the Father would reveal who Jesus truly is to make it clear on the outside who he is on the inside. To exhibit his internal excellencies or his inherent excellencies. Let me give you an example of sort of the opposite of glory. This weekend was the NHL's all-star weekend where all the best players in the NHL get together. They do a skills competition and then they play a meaningless game to demonstrate their skill. Back in 2016, John Scott was playing in the the minor leagues. That's the St. John's Ice Caps, part of the Montreal Canadiens organization. He had just been traded from the Phoenix Coyotes. John Scott had been in the NHL for 10 years. Over the course of 10 years, he had you know, been up and down from the pros to the minors. He had accumulated five goals over 10 years. In 2016, the fans were selecting who, were gonna, who was going to make it to the All-Star Game. and uh, Some fans on social media, I guess, just got bored you know, voting for the usual suspects. You know, Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid. And, and so they created this campaign on social media, Vote for John Scott. And John Scott not only made it to the All-Star Game, but he got more votes than any player. Which, which if you get the most votes, that means you become the captain of your team. In the, so, and then he got into the All-Star Game. He was the captain of the All-Star Game. And then, at the end of the game, they made him the MVP. You see, in John Scott's situation, they were... Adding to him what does not belong to him. He did not deserve that kind of recognition. And yet it was being it was being credited to him. He was being lifted up as though he were a great hockey player. He's better than I'll ever be, but he was not an NHL all-star. That's not what glorification is. Glorification is not just taking something average or or normal and making it great. No, it's taking something that already is great beyond compare and putting it on display. Do you follow? That's what Jesus is asking for in this moment. And it's so interesting that now is the time that he asks for it to happen. This whole idea. Look look at verse 1. It says that he... He lifted up his eyes to heaven. There are multiple different ways that you can pray. You can close your eyes. You can bow your head. You can stand up. You can sit down. You can kneel. In this particular instance, Jesus lifts his eyes up to heaven. He prays and he says, Father, the hour has come. This particular time, all throughout the Gospel of John, we've been hearing about the hour. John's Gospel divides quite neatly into two different sections. In in the first section, Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not come. It started at the wedding at Cana when his mother wanted wanted Jesus to solve the the beverage problem. And Jesus says, no, my my hour has not come. Later on, they wanted to arrest him in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, but they, they couldn't lay a hand on him. They couldn't arrest him because his hour had not come. It keeps getting repeated. But then there's a turning point in John chapter 12 when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill Zechariah chapter 9. And the people are singing Psalm 118 saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're declaring that Jesus is king. And then Jesus says, now, now is the time, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that's when the narrative really slows down. And, and zeroes in on just the last few days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Before he washes his disciples' feet in John 13.1, it says that he knew his hour had come. And now in John 17.1, he says the hour has come. The hour has come for what? For him to be glorified. Jesus wants to display and exhibit his inherent greatness. And he wants to do it. At the cross. This is the moment. This is the moment in time. When Jesus speaks about his glorification. As we're going to see here. It really involves three major events. His crucifixion. His his resurrection. And his exaltation. When Jesus is speaking about his glorification. He's speaking about all three of those things happening. And we'll see that as we get into this passage. But we're going to see that Jesus here is concerned. That the father would Glorify him. He turns it around so that he may glorify the Father. Do you see that in verse 1? Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. Chapter 16 verse 14 says the Spirit glorifies the Son. The whole trinity is involved in this glorification project. This demonstration of God's greatness. Greatness. And what we're going to see, Jesus here is going to describe three activities that he engages in that manifest the glory of God. Here's the first one. Jesus is glorified as he gives salvation. He's glorified as he gives salvation. Look with me at verse 2. He says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 2 begins with that word since. since. is this is why Jesus is asking to be glorified because he does this because he gives salvation. Notice the threefold repetition of give. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. So the Father gave Jesus all authority over all flesh. He's the ruler. He's the judge. He's large and in charge. And he has the, the authority to do what? It says the authority to give eternal life. One of the things we're going to see in this opening Uh, paragraph of Jesus' great prayers, we're going to see these grand themes that weave their way all throughout the Gospel of John. We're going to see them culminate and concentrate into just a few short sentences. And so Jesus here says that he's been given authority to give eternal life. Now eternal life, it's one of these major themes that keeps coming up in John's Gospel. In John chapter 13, uh, John chapter 3, famously when he's talking to Nicodemus, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's where, the, that's where we first hear about this, this theme. Then when he's talking to the woman of Samaria, he says, Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life talking to a religious insider, Nicodemus, he says, you need eternal life. He's talking to an outsider, a Samaritan woman, he says, you need eternal life. After he feeds the, uh, the, the multitude in John chapter 6, then he... he turns everything on, their ta- on, on its table and says that, that you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, really just referring to believing in him, but people don't understand. They walk away and the apostles say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then in John 10, when Jesus is talking about being a shepherd, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are just four examples. I I could go on and on about how this theme of eternal life keeps coming up. And it's related to Jesus' glory. He, he, He is glorified in the way that he has the authority to give eternal life. And this is really, really important for us to understand. If we're going to understand how Christianity works and what the message of Jesus Christ is, it's that he has authority to give eternal life. And that's so important for us to understand because we are hardwired as fallen sinful human beings to think that we have the authority to earn eternal life. That by our good deeds or our good actions, we somehow leverage God into having to let us into heaven. Some of us are working on a spiritual resume that we think we're going to submit to God when we die. And we expect and we're hoping that the good will somehow outweigh the bad and that we have the authority to earn our way into eternal life. That is not the way that it works. Jesus makes it very clear. He has been given authority to give eternal life. Eternal life is not earned. It is given. It is a gift. But notice the third way the word give is used. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus gives eternal life, but he gives eternal life to the ones... Whom God has given to him. This is another example that we see in the Gospel of John of the the doctrine of a predestination. Many times in the Gospel of John we see Jesus give open invitations. Inviting people to choose and to make a decision to follow him. But also in the Gospel of John we see many times... Where Jesus says, No one can come to the Father, no one can come to the Father but through me, and no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But then he turns around and says, How can you believe? How can you believe when you're so focused on getting glory from men and not the glory that comes from God? Sometimes Jesus seems to put the burden of responsibility on his Father, sometimes he seems to put the burden of responsibility on his listeners. But Jesus clearly here is saying that the gift of eternal life is only for those whom God has given to him. He's talking about predestination. Now, some of us who might lead in one theological direction or the other might say, well, I don't really like, I don't like the doctrine of predestination. I don't, I don't really, I don't. as soon as you said that word, I got a little bit defensive and agitated in my chair. Well, listen, predestination, it's not just a word that like Calvinists made up. It's a Bible word. And so if you're going to have an issue with predestination, you're going to have an issue with the Bible. And this is not negating the importance of the decisions that we make, but in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that before the foundation of the world, God predestined us for adoption as sons. Now some of us would object and say, well, how could a loving God do that? It seems so arbitrary. How could he just choose some and not choose the other? Well, study Ephesians chapter 1. It says that Before the foundation of the world, in love, he predestined. So there was no contradiction in the Apostle Paul's mind, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God can predestine and love simultaneously. In fact, it's the love that is motivating the, the, the predestination. You see, Jesus says eternal life is a gift. And if you remove the idea of God choosing and God giving to the Son those whom he gives eternal life. If you remove that from the equation, then when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we're not singing about the amazing grace. We're thinking, boy, I'm sure glad I chose Jesus. But when you truly understand it wasn't me that chose Jesus, it's Jesus that chose me, then when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we praise the glorious grace of God. And that we have nothing that we, no credit, no merit, no reason, nothing on our resume that would let us into heaven. Only, only, only the grace of God. I don't have time to plumb the depths of this. Question that has really Christians have wrestled with for for centuries and centuries. You want to talk more about it? We can talk more about it. But Jesus here says that he has given eternal life as a gift. And if you've had the privilege of receiving that gift, it's because God has given you to Jesus so that he would give you that gift. He's glorified as he gives salvation. As he gives eternal life. And as we've already seen, Jesus is always talking about eternal life. And it's while he's praying to the Father that he lays out this this beautifully succinct definition of what eternal life is. In verse 3 he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not not just simply in terms of chronology. It's not simply in terms of duration of your lifespan or how many days you go on to live on into eternity. Yes, it's part of that, but that's not all of what it is. Eternal life, Jesus says right here, this is eternal life that they may know you, the true God. The only true God. Jesus wants us to know him and to know his Father. See, there's a huge difference between knowing something about someone and knowing someone. Too many people who attend church and read books and study the Bible, they know things about God, but they don't know God. We can't help but know things about Prince Harry and Princess Ma- Meghan, right? Especially in the last couple of weeks. We can't help but know things about them. But no, none of us are going over to their house for dinner when they finally settle in Canada. It's not going to happen. You can know something about someone, but not know them. And whether or not the person is a a prominent person, a celebrity, or a politician, or whether they are your neighbor, if you are going to get to know someone, it requires some openness on behalf of the other person. If you want to know someone, and they're not interested in becoming known, do you know what that makes you? That makes you awkward at best, and a stalker at worst. In order to truly know someone, the person must be willing to be known. Loved ones, consider what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying right here. That he has come to give eternal life. And eternal life is knowing God. That God wants to be known. He has invited us into a relationship with him. Marvel at that. Revel in that. Eternal life is not for later. It's now. It's knowing God now. It's reading your Bible not for a check mark but but to meet with God. It's praying so that you would pour out your heart to God. It's fellowshipping with other believers so that you would understand how he's at work in other people's lives. It's about knowing God. So Jesus has come to give salvation. To give the gift of eternal life. Which is the gift of knowing the Father. That's the whole reason why Jesus was sent. So Jesus is glorified as he gives salvation. Secondly, he is glorified as he fulfills his mission. As he fulfills his mission, he says in verse 4 I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's interesting now, so the term glory, glory or glorify has already been used twice, but it's, it's been sort of it's been a, a future oriented request. Jesus is looking ahead to the cross and the tomb and the resurrection and his ascension. And he's asking, in the near future, I pray that you would glorify me. It's an event that Jesus is looking forward to. But then as he's looking forward to his glorification, Jesus looks back at how he has, past tense, glorified the Father. Jesus says that he accomplished the work. Again, we're looking at these five verses and concentrated in these five verses are all these broad, beautiful themes that we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John. This theme of work. And how Jesus' work brings glory to God. Jesus refers to the miracles that he performs as works. It all started at the wedding at Cana. Again, it says... This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, exhibited his inherent excellence. John 4, 34. After the conversation with the woman from Samaria, the disciples come back. Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 17. This is the controversy after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and they're they're upset with him because the man is carrying a mat on the Sabbath and that's work. And Jesus performed a miracle on the Sabbath and that's work. And Jesus says, my father is working until now. And I am working. He's, he's, his, he's aiming at accomplishing the work that God has given him to do. It's right after that, in the next verse, where the, where the Pharisees first plot to put Jesus to death. Because he called God his, his father in that statement right uh, right there. Keep following the theme throughout the gospel of John. In John 9, verses 3 and 4, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples come across this man who had been born blind. And they're trying to figure out why is he blind? It's got to be somebody's fault. And Jesus says, no, no, no. All this has happened to display the works of God. And then in John 10, 32, those Pharisees who were plotting to try to kill Jesus, they actually pick up stones and they're ready to drag him out of the, drag him out of the city and to kill him. Jesus just very calmly, this is, I want to see the replay on this when I'm in heaven. Jesus says to them, um, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Uh, for which of them are you going to stone me? This theme of him doing the works. His miracles were the works. You see, sometimes we just think that the miracles were just like Jesus being like, hey, check this out. That's pretty cool, eh? I don't know. Jesus glorified his Father by doing these works. Each and every work, in the way that he did it, and in the way that he and the way that he performed these miracles and the kinds of people that he did these miracles for exhibited the inherent excellence of his father if you want to know what god is like then you look at the miracles Sure, you're going to see things like his omniscience and his omnipotence and his holiness, but you're also going to see you're also going to see in his works his love and his mercy and his compassion and his grace and his goodness, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his patience, and his justice. A Gentile military official, a man who had been lying beside a pool, paralyzed for for almost forty years. Thousands of hungry people just longing for truth, scattered like sheep without without a shepherd. A man dead in a tomb with two grieving sisters. This is the kind of God that we serve, who goes after those on the outside, who goes after the marginalized. He manifested his glory, not just in how he did the miracles, but in who he did them for. Revealed the glory of God. Jesus had one more work left. And he was going to manifest the glory of God more clearly than ever before when he went to the cross. Where the justice of God and his seriousness against sin and his holiness is is seen 100% and also... His compassion and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness is seen 100%. That Jesus suffered and died in our place to bear the wrath of God, to pay the penalty that all of us deserve for our sin. The glory of God was revealed at the cross. So if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. Look at him on the cross. And so as we are followers of Jesus, we know we've been given a mission too. We're supposed to go out and make disciples. And we exist for the glory of God. We, we are supposed to live in such a way that manifests on the outside what God has done to us on the inside. And so it is on us to manifest. We may not, we may not have Anything miraculous happened in us and through us this afternoon, although that could happen, it may be exceptionally mundane as opposed to miraculous. but whether whether we are experiencing miracles or whether we are living in the mundane, the goal is still the same. The goal is always the glory of God that in our Parenting and in our driving and in our working and in the way we talk to our spouse in the way that we study for school in the way that we handle our sex drive in the way that we handle our finances and the way that we manage our time and the way that we relate to our parents in the way that we text our friends in the way that we treat our siblings in the way that we submit to our government in all of these things, we are supposed to put on display the glory of god we 're supposed to show his inherent excellence we 're supposed to put on display his holiness and his love and his mercy his his compassion, His grace, His goodness, His truthfulness, His faithfulness, His patience, and His justice. That's how we are called to live, to live for His glory. Jesus has accomplished His mission and He has sent us on mission. So Jesus is glorified as He gives salvation, as He fulfills His mission, and then lastly, as He returns to His position, as He returns to His position. John Scott, in the spring of 2016 after being the All-Star Game MVP and a nice news story, returned to his position. He went back to the minor leagues. He didn't go and lead lead his team to the Stanley Cup. He returned to his position. Why? Because there was no glory. (laughs) He was not glorified. Something was given to him that wasn't his. Not so with Jesus. Jesus says he's going to return to his position. That he will be glorified in that he will return to the glory that he has always had. Verse 5 he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Remember glorification involves the crucifixion. It involves the resurrection. It involves his ascension, his exaltation. So now Jesus is praying that he would be glorified at the end of all of it. When he returns to the presence of his father after being raised from the dead. And again, this is a major theme that we see woven throughout the Gospel of John. And it's all culminating. It's all being concentrated here in these five verses. This theme of the eternal pre-existence of the Son of God. That God did not create Jesus. That Jesus is God. I mean, it it got started in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Look back at chapter 17 verse 4. And now Father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It goes on to say in John chapter 1 if you keep reading it says that nothing was created except, except by and through Jesus. And then it says in, in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. But Jesus continually talks about how he came from the father. He always was with the father. In that famous conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3, he said in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. The son of man. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, listen, you think by following the law and memorizing the Torah that you're somehow going to earn your way to heaven? Jesus is like, that's not how it works. I've been there. I'm giving you first-hand knowledge. No one has ever gotten to heaven. And I can tell you that because I'm from there. I'm going back. And only if you trust me can you follow where I am going. I'll go and prepare a place for you. But no one gets there on their own. No one gets there. I'm the one who has come. I descended and I will ascend again. In John 6, Jesus told his disciples, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? In the presence of the Father. John 8:58. Another instance which learned, which, which led to... Uh, The religious leaders wanting to put Jesus to death. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Declaring his pre-existence before the days of Abraham, before the days of creation. Even using that phrase, I am, the personal name of God, making himself out to be God. It continues on in uh, John chapter 12 where it quotes a passage from Isaiah from the very throne room of God. And then John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. The hymn there is Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory in the throne room of God. and John 16, 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father, have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to The Father, this theme of Jesus coming from God and going back to God is crystallized here in this prayer. He's returning to his position. And so Jesus here prays. He prays that the Father would glorify him. He's already told the disciples that he's sending the Spirit. and The Spirit's going to do the same thing. Chapter 16, verse 14 says, The Spirit will glorify the Son. And Jesus' prayer was answered. He was was glorified in his crucifixion. He was glorified in his resurrection. He is presently glorified in his ascension and his exaltation. His prayer was answered. And, loved ones, here's the encouraging thing that as we pray, we can understand Jesus' prayer is answered. He endured the cross. He rose again from the dead. And he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so when we pray, we can be encouraged that Jesus' prayer was answered. But here's the great thing. Even though Jesus' prayer was answered, that doesn't mean that he stopped praying. He's still praying. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that he always lives to intercede for us. Like it says right here, he's in the presence of God. He's returned to the glory that he once had before the world existed. He is there right now and he is there praying. And as we pray, he is praying with us and for us. And his primary prayer request needs to be the same as our primary prayer request. That he would be glorified in our lives. Before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Let's bow our heads and pray together. King Jesus Christ, we want to live lives that glorify you. As we lift our voices in just a moment as a church, we want to bring glory to you, to give glory to you, not to add to you, not to give you anything that you need, not to fulfill anything that is lacking in you, but to simply declare and to display your infinite and glorious holiness and perfection to sing about your power and your love and your grace and your mercy, your justice. And God, I pray that we would not merely sing for your glory, but that we would live for your glory and that the way that we pray would be oriented around your glory. God, we love you. We thank you. Meet with us in this moment as we aim to bring glory to the Son by the power of the Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray, amen.